pass from Havili was magic. The shift on for Crotty. Boom, far down you go, Quackett Smith. Me, oh my, I haven't enjoyed that. Yes, boy. Sit back, relax, put your belt on, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Draft Rugby Show, the pod, or the show, boys, where we talk about how bloody good the Wallabies victory was on the weekend. Is that what we talk about? That's it. That's actually exclusively all we talk about. Yeah. It's pretty much going to be this one. We're going to complain a bit. Well, we definitely can have some complaining in there. Look, I'm your host for this evening, Nelson, and joined by my regular co-host, Harry. Harry, how are you doing? Uh, fantastic after the latest news, but that's a spoiler. Yeah, yeah. After the win on the weekend, I thought we were toast. <laughs> oh, yeah, good news all around. Kagi, mate, how are you doing? And uh, how did you think that game was going to play out after five minutes? Oh, mate, look, I was pretty close to turning the TV off. Um, very, very close. Uh, Harry has alluded to spoilers. We can't can't contain ourselves without excited uh, with some breaking news. But um, no, look, I mean, how good from the boys to get the job done. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it was definitely a special result. We're going to go and take a deep dive on all things that match. You know, some controversial controversial moments as well. We'll delve right into all of those. But I think one of the first things we want to touch on, I just want to congratulate Channel 9. Finally, they put it on the main main channel and uh, Game 3 viewer numbers have come in and the peak viewer numbers was almost a million views on Channel 9. I don't know if that peak was when we were winning because I really hope it was right at the very end there, or if that peak was five minutes in before everyone decided to leave. That, that's almost as uh, as many views as we had on our last YouTube video, I believe. Um, Harry, is yeah. around? Yeah, but we're always on our main channel, so we've got an open advantage. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. And the, the rumour is that there's probably 200,000 plus that watched on Stan as well, but we're not completely sure. I know there was five people in my household watching it on Stan. There's 200 memberships. I think that's, you know, another million right there. Just just to make sure I, I put it on both. I had Stan and Channel 9 going. Just, you know, you got to get the, get the numbers up, boys. you got to inflate, inflate. Let's do it. That's actually not how it works, but well done. <laughs> well done. Um, for one household? I don't know. I, look, I was trying everything, okay? Um, no, there's actually count. There's actual TVs that count, and uh, your TV is not one of them. So whatever you did made no impact whatsoever. Harry, you uh, you were talking about what we were, uh, what what we are. Do you want to go and delve into that? Yeah, at the end of last week's pod, what did you call us, mate? What's what's draft rugby? Oh, man, we're going viral, uh, and that is a play on words because we are the new dick pic. No longer <laughs> does pe- do people send random dick pics to random people because it's offensive. No one likes it. We've moved on. It's twenty twenty one. From now on, just send the draft rugby show to your friends. Because it's going to be so much more warmly welcomed. So that's it. Draft Rugby. <laughs> 2021's brand new dick pic. That's us. Well, bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it catches on. Mate, even, even if you want to be offensive, send the Draft Rugby podcast. Send yeah. if, you're, if you're sad, if you're condolences. We don't really care, mate. Send it for anything. But definitely share, share, share the pod and uh, get after us on YouTube where you can catch this video. And you're really going to want to, with Harry and Nels super stepping up their content game week by week. It's actually, look, they're two very competitive brothers and it's like they're trying to outdo each other with each week. So some awesome imagery and content and even videos in today's pod. Spoilers again. Um, So make sure you get after us on YouTube. 
Yeah, boys, let's let's jump into what we had predicted, our predictions for game three. Obviously, we were so good in game one and two. Harry, how did you see this one going and, and how far off were you? Yeah, what's up on obviously the end score, spoiler alert if you haven't watched it, was 33 to 30 for the Wallabies. Um, and I went 21-19. I thought there'd be a couple of points in it. And I thought Hodge would be the bloke taking the last minute kick. I was pretty close, to be honest. I was one point off, obviously. But uh, the biggest thing was Hodge asked for the kick that won the game from Lalesio, but Lalesio sat him down and picked it himself. So I like the confidence. They get one point off and tipping the correct side. I'm pretty sure Kagi has left out the teamy tip there. I'm pretty sure he tipped the, the French, but let's move on. <laughs> Kagi, yeah, what are you predicting? Really of this podcast, that's uh, defamation right there, mate. You'll be receiving a suit in the mail. I won't have that. There's no way I would ever tip anyone but the boys. Uh, I would go down with my team. Um, I tipped 24 to 19. I said it would be, uh, again, a close game. But, um, well, actually, I tipped the first two games, Wallabies to win by 14. So I did. I think all three of us learnt by uh, by the third game. But, uh, yeah, I thought it would, the Wallabies would get up by five. Um, and, look, Nelson, you can tell he's, he's holding himself together. Yes, he did get the closest. Nelson, what did you tip for the game and uh, how close were you? Look, boys, I said 28-25. I wasn't too far off in, in that. But the main thing that matters, I was bang on with the points difference. Three points with a late penalty to take the Wallabies to the lead. And, and that's what happened. Well done. Well done, Nils. Yeah, it's not often that you're right. So, boys, that's that's um, that's. um I think it's time for the main course. So let's delve into this Australia-French uh, third test. Um, I mean, the first five minutes was a big roller coaster for any any Aussie fan. I think it was, you know, two minutes in when Dungunu got injured, um, putting some pressure on that that right wing. I think it was off the kick, and then moments later, we saw Corbetti have a just absolute brilliant tackle that dislodged the ball from Jelanche's hands, and then five to ten minutes later, Jelanche dropped to the ground with a sore knee, grabbing his left elbow, complaining that his left eye hurt. Like, he had no clue what was going on, didn't know what, what to grab. He passed, mate. That's why he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> See, it's like he fell apart, mate. Just he didn't know what was wrong with him. Yeah, which part of his body had, uh, had internally combusted or collapsed. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, so, not, I think you're right. About the five to ten minute delay there, uh, it was like it was like we were on some dial-up internet, that reaction time. But um, So he's got some, some work to do on that one. Oh, I mean, yeah, we were trying not to make the whole pot about this, but yeah, come on, push on. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll push on, but um, we'll, we'll I mean we're going to delve on into it a bit more later. But look, Ben O'Keefe, um, Harry, you were I think was this you that was reading some of the commentary on social media? No, it was me actually. Uh, I was reading some commentary just talking about. Some people were saying that after after that absolute Barry Crocker of a decision um, for the red card, that uh, O'Keefe was actually had been pr- pretty fair or siding with the, <clears throat> the Aussie team the rest of the match, um, and I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Um, but I'm actually curious to know if <clears throat> I, I could have just been blinded by, with the absolute rage that I was feeling for the entire rest of that game. Uh, <laughs> I think there was a point only a little bit later in the game. It wasn't that red card where, you know, Hooper was sincerely disagreeing with the ref and saying, mate, 37,000 people in here. Yeah, that, that was the Geelong head high. And, and let's be honest, that was a bit tongue <clears throat> There was nothing in that. I, no. I think 
part of it is definitely our our yellow colored glasses because of the fact that we were so angry like i genuinely don't think i could focus properly on the game until after half time because <laughs> i was just numb like i thought we'd yeah. the entire I, i'll tell you what we need we need like a blood pressure reader or something you need to tape ourselves up one of these games because i swear i was the closest to a heart attack i'm ever gonna be yeah i was i had stopped watching the game it was still on in front of me and I was just looking for French people to abuse on Twitter. Like, I was on a rampage. Kiwis were generally against us as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, think, I told every Kiwi mate I knew that I hate all Kiwis. I think... In, Else, don't, 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 uh, don't alienate everyone. Uh, I changed my mind. I changed my mind later, but at the time, that's what I was thinking. Look, I Harry, think- I was going to say, you, you touched on t- uh, on that Tate McDermott, um, well, you know, so uh, the French... Coolio scoring that try shortly afterwards where the forearm to the face of Tate McDermott. Look, honestly, I'm completely okay with that. Um, it's just, it's the absolute bitter taste in my mouth still from Samu Karevi being yellow carded for that in the 2019 right. Rugby World Cup against Wales. The most ridiculous thing ever <laughs> that caused us to not be top of the pool um, and lose that game. It's just like, I think I think Harry probably said it uh, in one of his tweets. It's just the inconsistency. You know what I mean? Like, like I think ultimately that was fine. The I have no problems with Kuya's try over Tate. Just a good hard carry. Very hard yeah. to stop. Yeah, look, I, I, I game, it was it was really hard to take. I think. I I think if that was in any other game and there wasn't a red card prior to it, no one would even mention it. To be fair, yeah. Um, I don't think it was a big deal. It just felt we were very hard done by when that happened moments later. I, I wasn't really raging at that at that point. To be fair, one of the other things that. I mean, I, I did rage a little bit on about it. I think we all did was that try that was disallowed when they took it back. Again, guys, we're, we're going to get to this. So let's not let's not delve into this right now. You're, you're right. Yeah. There's refereeing decisions that we're going to sit there and pick apart in a little I mean, bit. Why, why do we have to go point by point, Harry? Why can't we discuss that, that you know, shocking call as well while we're talking about it? Yeah, okay. It'll just screw our footage, but no problem. Um, okay, hold on one second. Let me Oof. see if I can scroll through. Um, this is us getting let's, let's do it now then eh? oh, there's a few there's a lot of slides there Chase um, so we, hold on. Uh, let's go let's go to talk about now so here, here we go this is the game that you were talking about the uh, the BPA disallowed try so the call was and we've got it up on screen <clears> as well that BPA was not allowed to score his try because of the fact that there was a knock on to Hunter Paisami earlier in the uh, early in the set play. Now, there was some, there was an actual question from Hooper, the captain, to the referee when they went and put it to TMO because the launch complained. And let's be honest, the launch has lost all credibility on any uh, kind of sports, <laughs> sadly. I'm not even, I went from loving the bloke to think he's, he's, he's a bit of a, a dirtbag, to be honest, because let's say, but let's go on to uh, the disallowed try. So I'll put the law up here from the uh, the World Rugby TMO rulings on how they're meant to make this back from make these calls back from 2019, and and I believe these are still current. You can see the point I've highlighted there. The potential infringement must have occurred between the last reset of play or restart of play and the touchdown, but not further back in play than two previous rucks and or malls. So two previous rucks on and or malls is all they can go back. Now, Hooper said it was more than two, and the referee said, Ben O'Keefe said, that the TMO looked at the footage and it was not more than two. Well, I've done some homework. <laughs> Here you go, boys. 
Let's count them up here. So <clears> the ball for Paisami, here's the knock-on. He takes it into contact. The French team all call it. There's one phase as we hit it up. The counter as well. Then we come up to a second phase <laughs> that Petey Samu about to jump in. So from now on, they could have a look at it if he scores it right here, but he doesn't. As you can see, it falls immediately. And then the last phase, BPA, on the third phase, picks it up and scores. So there's three phases. So the TMO is wrong. He has no right to look at that play. Jelanche is wrong, although I don't, I don't go against him here for actually asking the question. And then when Hooper was asked, Ben O'Keefe lies and says that it was okay and they counted it because they didn't because it's wrong. My my one my it's wrong. Yeah, it's it's really bad that you can have an error that's so so obvious that every punter knows, mm. and somehow the four guys are apparently you know the, the people defending it say, well, four TMOs, four referees looked at it, and it's okay. It's bull. Like I think the the problem I have is that I don't actually think they did count it. I think that the TMO only looked at the knock on. I think they went back, reviewed the footage. They're like, yep, it's a knock on. <clears throat> And then Hooper came in and said, yeah, but how many phases was it? And Ben, ben O'Keefe was already like, no, no, it's all good. They've looked at everything, whatever. Uh, and it was just like, no, no, mate, have they have they looked at how many phases it was? You know, there Yeah, I think, I think Ben O'Keefe there, really all he needs to do is say, can we check how many phases it was? Because he listens to one captain. He doesn't listen to the, you know, the, the advice from the other captain. I think all he had to do was look at it. The the thing that makes this bad is the lie. Like to, to say, yeah, you back your TMO's decisions, fine. But to then blatantly lie to a captain who's asked you a question, that is a serious offense in my in my eyes. I think it's ridiculous. He can make a mistake. People will make mistakes, or the other guy can make a mistake, but to, to ignore him, I think that's wrong. Look at the uh to, to move backwards now since we've already delved into it a little bit the red card so i've got the uh the way that the law needs to be interpreted here on screen you can obviously see the corabetti red card being handed out four minutes and 27 <coughs> into a game so you know gigantic decision for the context of this series and for the context of a million people trying to watch the game at home so point one has head contact occurred if no, play on. Now, I think that this is something that we can debate, but we'll have a look at the footage. If yes, was there any foul play? If no, play on. If you're saying there was head contact, then I'd have to say that it's foul play. So we play, we move on. The player at fault, I think largely Corabetti, if it was in the head, would be at fault. Was the degree of danger low, medium or high? Well, without a doubt, he flew in at high pace. So it can't be low danger. So it has to be medium or high. I think that's fair. Yep. Probably high with the pace that he came in and how hard the hit was. And was there any mitigation? Now, mitigation will not apply for intentional or highly reckless acts of foul play. This wasn't re intentional. This wasn't highly reckless. And there was definitely mitigation when the player dropped his height. Now, <coughs> O'Keefe said he said that there was no mitigation, but it should go from a red to a yellow card if you think he made contact with the head. And I should say that from some of the correct points on Twitter, that it, their head also counts as anything above shoulder. So that counts the throat as well, which was the argument of a lot of people. If we flip forward, then we have the World Rugby Law Application Guide. So this is how it should be in uh, actually uh, in applied, which is what we were just talking about. So the considerations for mitigation is what's the player's line of sight? Is there a sudden and significant drop or movement? Is there a clear attempt to change the height? And is the level of control uh, good or not? And finally, is it an upright tackle? Is it passive or dynamic? So he's not upright. 
He's bent at the hips. We're going to have a look at that. The level of control, I think he is in control. So I don't think he can... He, he, I don't think we can defend him too much there as well in, in terms of making the... the uh, it's not like he was knocked into the tackle. Uh, there is a clear attempt to change height and that he lowers it. <coughs> and I think we're going to have a look at the footage here and see about the change of height of Jalonch. So here we go. Let, let's slide through. Now, here's the play in real time. Sorry. Huge hit. And let's come through. That kind of been real time because he, he took about three minutes to um, react. <laughs> face there. Yeah, there's the delay. So, I mean, I, I think we've already made our our thoughts pretty well known about what we think of your launch. But this is the million-dollar picture for me. This one's great because when he, when we're looking behind your launch, you can't see anything. But I'm going to be honest, I don't think we can defend ourselves there. Let's go over to the close-up view looking at Corin Betty's right shoulder. Now, there was arguments for some people that it was a shoulder charge, and people keep saying he led with the shoulder. So for the record, every single tackle needs to lead with the shoulder for it to be an effective tackle. You don't tackle <coughs> with your arms. So there's a real issue that people are trying to say that that makes it a shoulder charge. He's clearly wrapping his right arm as he In makes the elbow. Watch the elbow of Jalange actually deflect and block Corbetti's arm continuing to move forward. So... We can see here on this image that Corin Betty's right shoulder is behind the chin of Jalonch on the frame. And you can see the shadow of Jalonch's chin on Corin Betty's shoulder. So that means that there has to be space between his right shoulder and Jalonch's head. So therefore, the contact cannot be made direct to the head. Arguably, it's made on the chest or throat. And it's not clear in any way, shape, or form. The image that kind of shows, form. like slotting together a jigsaw puzzle, you actually couldn't have hit him more perfectly. <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. Now, Dave Rennie said that he was on the actual board that actually came out and said how these things should be interpreted. And he said one of the key pieces of information was what happens to the player's head after he's hit. If the player's head goes forward, it's because it didn't hit the head and it's hit the chest and therefore the player's head gets left behind the tackle. If it goes backwards, it's because the contact was constant, uh, was was immediate and on the head. So you can see the first movement there is the forward, the head comes forward onto Corabetti's shoulder, which means the tack, the tackle is not made on the is not made on the throat or head. And then after that, the entire body goes back. But can you see how the head is still whipping forwards? Mm, for sure, yeah. There's no possible way that that tackle can be on the shot, the actual head. As we come out, you'll actually see where Corabetti's shoulder is in relation to Jalonch because he might have slid down a little bit, but it's still well in the middle of his pec. So there's no way you can definitely say that that was ever on the head or neck. And actually, the biomechanics say that there's no way it can be. As we come forward, we get to see how much he dominated Jalonch and then how much of a cow Jalonch is and how much respect <laughs> we'll lose for him from here. And hold on, there's the hit. Seconds have passed. We've taken one, two, three, four steps, five steps. Now, last thing I want to say is the mitigation about body height, right? So was there a loss in body height? Because we were told there was not. Now, this isn't the absolute best view for it, but we'll use it on one clip. There's Jalonch standing completely tall, what, two or three steps away from Corabetti. And then as he comes into contact, he is now crouched at the knee and crouched at the hip. Now, I could actually bring up the angles of his knee and hit to prove the point. But I think the footage that we've showed is already enough that he last minute dropped his height. So there is... I, 
even yeah. if he said it should be yellow. And secondly, you can see from the footage, it's clear he didn't actually hit directly on the head. Now, this, this is incredibly frustrating, and it's why I think it almost ruined the game. Thank God the, the Wallabies played one of their best games in a long period of time to save the match. But, you know, I, I've had a few people, as we put the kind of polls out to hear people's opinions over the last 24 hours, say the Wallabies won. Why do you care? I can tell you exactly why. I have the perfect answer. Because it's not just about this game. I am sick of these red cards ruining important test matches. It's ridiculous the impact that it has on the game, especially when things can be this unclear. It's something that seriously needs to be looked at. I can't understand why the Northern Hemisphere teams denied the 20-minute red card, at least yeah. they could have some of it. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Minute, minute of a game. They could have ruined the entire spectacle. It's it's pretty it's pretty simple and it's pretty clear when you, you break that down and you look at it. And we don't have all the angles. We don't have the ability to look at everything like a TMO does. But we also know that Corin Beatty is 13 centimetres shorter. He has bent at the hip and he has bent at the knees. There is no way that was on him for height when he clearly drops his height significantly in those last few steps as well. But I agree entirely. The issue out of this is that, yes, there's been a crackdown on head injuries and head injury assessments. The player was not going to come off for a head injury assessment until Hooper had had to point it out and say, he has to go off for a head injury assessment. He dropped to the ground holding his face. Another issue is he held the front of his face, which never touched. No matter what our interpretation is, the the front of his face never touched Hooper. So for me, I, I think one thing that needs to be considered here is, is that clear acting and milking against the the spirit of the game? Is is that something where a penalty is that where a penalty could be overturned? Other things could be thought about or brought in, or could that be reprimanded after the match and say this this in itself is not against the spirit of the game? Could he get a fine? Could he get a match ban? Or I don't know what it can be, but we are we are looking at the moment at descending into. I think something that is going to be very hard to change in, in rugby in in, a long, in in the world. I, I'm fine with protecting the head. There's nothing wrong with protecting the head. But when there's a significant drop and there's those mitigating factors, they cannot be ignored. Yeah. I was just going to say, do you want to have the last point on this? And you can read out my, uh, my favourite slide of the entire presentation today. Yeah. Um, no, my final thoughts on it, and I'll try not to drag drag it on, but it's just that um, for mine, mitigating factors is, I think, a confusing issue for a lot of people because lowering your body height, there's no one in that situation who isn't going to lower their body height for oncoming um Contact. Contact, think, right? That's like a significant loss of lowering of height at the last couple of seconds. Well, so my, my, my interpretation of mitigating factors is, has the player kind of like slipped over or like fallen into a tackle? That is when, for mine, someone's coming in for a tackle, their head's almost down, and then they shoulder someone in the face because that guy has kind of slipped at the last second or whatever. That's when, in my opinion, you say there's mitigating circumstances. This person has committed to the tackle and the player that he tackled has fallen or slid out of the way, had a sudden drop, <clears throat> uh, which was unavoidable, and that's, that's, when that's happened. That's, that's how I interpret mitigating factors. That's, that's fair enough, Kagi, but the, the way that the player dropped hmm. still was, if it's a significant drop, it doesn't matter what caused him to drop. If he slipped over or he dropped his body height significantly, hmm. that shouldn't change what the tackler's body position was. He still significantly dropped. 
Yeah, I guess for, for, for mine, in, in, that, in this scenario, this tackle, I, I don't think, I actually don't think there were any mitigating factors, but I don't think that should have even been a question because I don't think the contact was anywhere in the red zone as we've discussed. But well, the, the, the other issue is, look, it just wasn't clear enough. And when yeah. you really slow it down like we have here, which surely is what the TMO should be able to do but didn't, mm. then it becomes more obvious. But if it's not that clear, how can you possibly send someone off for 76 minutes of a test match? Absolutely. Yeah. Look, my last point on this is, the world rugby often has, you know, the flavor of the year that they're cracking down on. Only a year or two ago, we had if you touched any player anywhere in the air, it was a yellow or red card. We seem to have relaxed on that a little bit uh, compared to a year or two ago. And this year, it's it is head contact. And of course, it is something that we want to see uh, out of the game and whatnot. But um, I agree, it is it's ruining Test matches uh, and particularly, yeah, that. The fact that it was mainly England and France that uh, rule went against the um, 20 minute red card replaced the player ruling just makes no sense. But look, I think we've talked that's, enough about this. Harry, you said I could on, read that's out the line. Best uh, part of the show. Just had the news about just before we started the pod of uh, Marika Korobedi. His red card uh, was not upheld by the disciplinary committee, it was thrown out. They said uh, there was absolutely nothing to it. Now, come on. Indication! I read the quotes that have been sent through from Ball Collie are the best. The player, Marika Corinbetti, admitted to technically committing an act of foul play worthy of a red card. That is to say, he thought he must have hit him in the head and admitted fault. Then, having reviewed all the evidence, the committee deemed that Marika Corinbetti's tackle on French loose forward Anthony Gelange initially made shoulder-to-shoulder contact. In other words, they disagreed with the Aussie trying to dob himself in. Subsequently, through the impact, any contact to the chest and neck was incidental by Corin Betty. Therefore, World Rugby's head contact process was not met due to mitigating factors and the act of the foul play was secondary. There was no red card threshold. The, all the players that are saying it doesn't matter. We almost oh, please, please. Amazing. It's, yeah, vindication finally. Look, I, I think we're, we're going to descend if we don't move on. Um, the, that was our second winger. You know, within the first five minutes that we lost in this match, we were all very excited to see Dungunu. We're very lucky that we had Hodge on the bench. I, I don't think Hodge looked like he was at full pace. There was a little kick put through and he really looked like he couldn't stride out. But... We, we've got to be thankful we had him on the bench. He was very, very solid. He made good reads. I think he was a solid player on the bench for us. I think he, he did his part wonderfully when he came on. He was just, he was the right player that we needed to come on. You know what I mean? He is, we've all often talked about Hodgie as our Mr. Fix-It, but just uh, his defensive reads and his cool head, I think that really helped. Yeah, look, let's talk about the uh, the two best players on the park, one from each side. So, first of all, Melvin Jaminet, who is apparently a Pro D2 player before this series, I think he's had an exceptional series. Yeah. He's ended amazingly well, which I'm sure Nelson's going to get to those stats in a little while. He's kicked amazingly well. His counterattack is phenomenal. The bloke is 77 kilos, 180 centimetres. I just can't believe that that can be true because he sure, just... He can't be 77 no. Mate, I'm just I'm just reading what uh, Ultimate Rugby tells me, and they are Ultimate Rugby. So. Who stitched him up? Yeah, well, look, for, for this game, he had 15 points. He had 86% tackle percentage. I think he missed one tackle. He had a couple of defenders beaten. He had an offload, a clean break, 93 run metres, clearly the most by anyone in the French team. 
And for those points, he had three penalty goals and three conversions, as well as I think his own try as well. Is that right? No, no try. But man, he, he, he was exceptional again, and he's just grown every single game. And, and I think we should really commend a lot of the French players, but Jaminet had a great game. He's certainly but, himself on the world stage, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he really went from strength to strength throughout this whole tour, really. I think there was a lot of talk about him and him being a player that was going to be a running style player, but not a kicking fullback. And I think he proved that wrong as well. I think he, he was quite composed when he was kicking for, for field position. He was brilliant at kicking off the tee. I think he's a very exciting player coming through for France. Yeah, he made 15 of 16 kicks in the series, 94%, uh, 93%, like almost 94%. Unbelievable. Yeah, do we... The hero of the day for for Australia, Noel Alessio, who, I mean, I think we're all saying we we thought he was young and and maybe didn't deserve to start all three games, but I think he definitely grew through every single one. And, man, he had an exceptional, exceptional performance here. So stats for him, 21 years old he is only. He had an offload, a clean break, 35 run metres, most importantly, had 23 points, which was made up of a try, four penalty goals and three conversions. He missed only one penalty kick in the entire match. He also had three of his four tackles as well, but they were just clutch plays as well. Everything that he did to leave his mark on this game was when it really counted. That intercept try when they were down a man early to try and get them back into the game came from nowhere. And how he slid through to make such a big run through so many defenders, I have no idea. Um, mate, the cojones is on the go. The ball's to go for that play. You're already a man down uh, in the numbers game and he just went for the all or nothing and it paid off. And we needed it so badly. Absolute pivotal turning point of that game. I think the interesting thing out of it is not only was he waiting to pick it off, the angle that he hit straight away, like he didn't just try to catch the ball. He went, I'm catching this ball and I'm backing myself to score here. And I thought that it was awesome to see. Yeah. Uh, You've got uh, Noah's kicking um, as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he's kicked four or five and three from his three conversions. So uh, for the series, that means he's kicked five out of five for game one. Seven, uh, six out of six for game two and seven out of eight for game three. So that's 94.7%, 18 of 19 kicks. And, I mean, he kicked exceptionally well at Super Rugby level. It's phenomenal to see him put that onto the test, big big match, uh, into the big matches of test footy as well. And just phenomenal, the nerves that he had to kick. That last penalty, it was straight in front, but I think it was about 40 metres out. It wasn't a gimme. He just, and he looked so assured. He looked so confident. Absolutely. And Nelson Nelson said earlier that Hodge put his hand up for it. And uh, you love to see young Noel Alessio saying, no, boys, I've got this. I'm on fire. Give it to me. Um, And it's it's just awesome. Yeah. Like you said, 95% out of a kicker. It's uh, rarely do we celebrate when when our kickers are on song. And sometimes we see it as their job. You know, we only talk about it when we've got our kickers missing all the time. But no, that's that's frankly incredible and um, absolutely awesome. Just what we need. I think one thing that I really enjoyed seeing him over this series is he plays with a smile on his face. He shares his emotions when they lost. He he backs himself and he's a very, you know, emotional, emotive player on the field. You can tell that he's loving it. I think one of the big things here, I think Harry's going to have or take us through a highlight and, and flick it on in a second, but... This French try, this was, I think, the second French try. The first one was Coolio uh, going down that, that short side. This was a little bit later on in that match. Harry, do you want to run us through what happens here? It's Coolio going down the short side again. It is. Oh. It is again. 
And then, Kagi, uh, mate, it's, he's your favourite player. Come on. Oh, mate, Teddy Tomas, uh, at full pace, chip and chase through, and then through the hands. Oh, yeah, Kuyo yeah. involved again. We've got Hastoy and out to Barassi to finish it. A very a huge team try. They've gone 80-odd metres. <clears throat> um, just remained composed. Good backup and support, but skills, execution. They had everything. It was fantastic, this try. the support play? Like they, they knew that something was on then because they had four or five backs lined up across the field. This mm-hmm. was a planned move that exposed a hole in the Wallabies' defence. It was absolutely phenomenal. Loved this play. And don't get me wrong, as a Wallabies fan, I wear every single Wallabies try was the biggest moment to me. But objectively looking at the match, this was the try of the series. It was absolutely it, phenomenal. It, it was. It was phenomenal. It was hard not to enjoy that, even though it was against us and we were a man down. It was absolutely brilliant to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll have a little bit of a chat about some of the stats in, in this one. So the Wallabies, yet again, I think we've had this ability throughout this series to just dominate the possession and the territory throughout the match. I, I heard someone on Twitter saying the issue with dominating territory and possession or dominating possession means generally you, you don't do anything with it and, I, and you don't score points. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think we used our set piece very well and we, we had an ability to hold the ball better in this game with our breakdown work, with the, the injection of Swinton and Nasarani onto the starting side. But look, we had six... I was just going to say, I think it's, it's even more important when you're playing a man down for the whole game, uh, yeah. possession and territory is everything, but, but huge, mainly possession. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, even if you do nothing with it, you want to hold on to the ball because that's just a longer period of time that you're not defending, <laughs> running around the field, defending against an extra man. So, yeah, um, definitely. amazing job to step up with that. Yeah, we had a uh, 64% of that possession, 67 of the territory, which is, is great to see. Interestingly, I mean, this makes it a little bit tough on the French, but we only had to make 67 tackles compared to their 137 over double the tackles, and both teams missed 11 tackles. So their percentage was definitely up. Um, but the French line out, it was a little bit of a weakness for them. They lost three. I think that was their worst in the series when it comes to the line out as well. If we look at. That was Darcy Swain and Swinton. Uh, I think we oh, talked yeah. about last week, Swinto coming in, did a really good job just uh, being mongrels in there. Yeah, definitely. If we look at some of these attacking stats, um, the Australians made 100, uh, 278 compared to 309 run metres. So we held the ball so much more. We, made, we went into contact, you know, less than... Um, less than, yeah, twice as much, yet we still didn't make the, the same amount of metres. That's pretty funny to see. I think a huge amount of those metres was that try, that highlight of the match, though. <laughs> but, cool. but um, yeah. I think it really tells a story about how the Wallabies ended winning this game. I think, in a way, we're kind of lucky the way that the French approached the game. They <clears> a low possession game in general. They didn't really have a lot of strike power out wide to throw the ball around. And obviously the exception is Teddy Thomas <coughs> and how we, how we set that, that try up that we just watched. But it really did play into the Wallabies' favour that the French weren't throwing it around and exposing the numbers too often. I think against some of the other, I guess, more attack-minded teams, we probably wouldn't have had that same kind of favourable play out of how the game went. The French seemed 
comfortable just setting their line and letting their wallabies run at them when really they probably need to throw the kitchen sink at us and and expose those numbers so the wallabies played exceptionally well but maybe tactically the french didn't take advantage of us quite as much as they could yeah i think i think one thing where they didn't get to take advantage of us they still had seven to four line breaks but what we did, we pushed up through our centres and shot in defensively and had quite a high line speed to, to prevent the ball getting to that width for, for the, the French side. I think that was a really important part of how we won this game. We didn't let them use that overlap. And at no point really did it feel like they had an overlap in this match. That's it. We, we gave them a bit of a taste of their own medicine, right? Just locking down uh, the midfield with that line speed. Um, all right. It's been this one. I haven't even talked about Taniela Tupo yet. I, in the preview last week, talked about one of the narratives of this for mine was huge, was we're finally seeing Tupo and Demba Bamba coming off the bench together and having that being those impact players for the last 30 in this one. It was awesome. Uh, they were both pretty immense for both of their teams. But you have to say that uh, Tupo, he, uh, he took it home in this one. He got the treats. Did the Mahi got the treats. Uh, he was <laughs> unbelievable, but... Largely, uh, if we look at their role in the set piece, Tupo was just an absolute force to be reckoned with. The Wallabies did dominate across most uh, all the set pieces, the lineouts, and the scrums in this one, but the scrums, Tupo was just unbelievable. So, uh, before I stop talking about Tupo, just that try as well. Uh, yes, it's really hard to stop him, a pick and drive, but normally someone's on your ass or whatever. He didn't even need anyone. He literally went through three people. There was three defenders, and he just <coughs> went through all of them. It was Harry. I don't know if you've got that footage, and I'm just uh, jumping ahead to it, but no, 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 no. too excited about <laughs> it. But, um, just how good was he, though, Tupo? Unbelievable. Oh, he's he's a, he's a beast. He is an absolute weapon, and and as you said, Demba Bamba, he came on and made an impact as well. To be fair to him as well, but I, I think it was a really good showing from the reserve front row from the Aussies, and they really controlled that set piece, and I think it was really telling. In fact, sorry, the only other point I'm going to make about that the scrum was. The scrum was so good and so dominant that I think there was at least two scrums in the second half. Uh, it was probably only two scrums where the French had the feed in the Wallabies 22 in a fantastic attacking position. And the Wallabies scrum was so good that Hooper just left the scrum and went and defended in the backs. So he went and defended at the fly half position. So we scrummed a man down because we were that certain that we had their number. I mean, how demoralizing is that for the French? You know what I mean? You're already you're on the you're in the best you're in the red zone, and the, yeah. the Wallabies go take a man down themselves. It's, it's impressive. I, I think most of the time you'd tend to see if it was a forward missing, they love to bring a winger who has no idea or an outside back into that forward pack, so that scrum had the weight. And we did the opposite. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. I mean, it helped that we had three we had three locks, and I don't know if Swint was did Swinto play the full eighty? I think he came off. I can't remember who stayed up, but we had three pretty heavy big locks on as well. So. Yeah, no, Swinton came off. Look, I, I think we've got to jump across to this finish. This was such a brilliant finish. The, the French right near the back end of that game, 55-odd metres out on a big angle, they had a penalty awarded to them and they deliberated. It felt like for three or four minutes whether they were going to take this kick or not. But it came down to, I don't know if the players on the field knew, but if, if it was a draw, it would have been a drawn series and Australia would have retained the cup. Look, I, I don't know if that came into their mind or not. A 55-metre kick on the angle, I think they went, no, this is not our option, and decided that they were going to have a crack here. Um, boys, how good was this finish? Kagi, do you want to talk about this this uh, this finish? 
Yep, I tuned out. Did you just talk about them opting not to take the kick and going for the... Yeah, man. Oh, look, it, it basically <laughs> will we'll move. They were just saying we wanted you to, to, to wrap us up. Come on. The wind out of my sails. I was reading, I was reading Harry's, Harry's barrage of messages. Um, yeah, look, I mean, Darcy Swain getting in there, stealing the ball in the final play, um, huge. Just... Yeah, look, I think it cap, capped off the, the fantastic game and series that he had. Uh, and I'd like to to go ahead. Look, I don't, I don't, I think Darcy Swain uh, might not have had as good a series as everyone was talking about. But in terms of your first series uh, as a Wallaby, unbelievable. Okay. I would like to apologize for comparing him to he who shall not be named on this podcast again, Captain Mud, who is no longer at our shores. Thank you. Yeah. I was I was I was going to bring that up. To be fair, that you you guys tore him to shreds. I think before you're saying he didn't really deserve it. But look, he he single handedly in key moments, single handedly in key moments at the end of two games, the two games we won, he had that last impact. So 80th minute, so he got that pressure on that line out and disrupted that line out massively in game one, and then he had this where he actually came straight through the middle of that rolling ball, not something that's easy to do. He came through, he came inside one player, and that's all you need to do and disrupted that ball. I watched it. He wrapped around the outside, and then when he realised he somehow ended up in the middle, he he looks up and he looks at the ref and goes, oh, shit. (laughs) No, no, I I watched it. He was was on the right-hand side of one of the guys, and he'd re-corrected his body position and came inside the mouth. I think it was absolutely fine. He was unsure. He did look at the ref, but he, he came through the middle. I think we can both agree the ref's always right unless it's against the Wallabies. Correct. Yeah. I, okay. I will say what was telling for mine was just um, with Philip on the bench, uh, I think Darcy Swain was calling the lineouts, uh, and he certainly was giving a lot of chat in amongst those forward huddles for such a junior member of the side. So I really liked that to see him revving the boys up. And, uh, and taking on some responsibility. I thought that was huge. So definitely I think excited for things to come from him. We've got a couple of things, a couple of special mentions. One of the special mentions was Hooper yet again having a brilliant match. He had five runs for 23 metres, three tackle busts, three, uh, one offload, one line break, a try assist and six from six tackles plus a turnover. And I think at one point he almost scored a try using his bum to batter through the defensive line yet again. And uh, he was very close to the line, very close to making it happen. I also wanted to give a bit of a shout-out to Lucan Salakai-Lotto. In every single scrum, he kept checking if Jelanche was okay with his head knock. And at the end of the game, he rubbed his head and just – it looked like he said, I hope you're okay, mate. Like, he was really, really worried for Jelanche's uh, well-being there. Yeah. No, no. He's, a, he's, a, he's an excellent man, isn't he? Yeah, so great, great, great to that, see. That wraps us up for the main course. So let's push on to the uh, the review of the entire series, the most important part of any meal. Following any main course is dessert. Le dessert. Brought to you by Pilk Ice Cream. The tastiest vegan ice cream in the world, and I've tasted all of them. So for dessert this week, we're going to be looking at, kind of reflecting back, if you will, on what's happened in this series and what we've learned. First of all, I'm going to give Nelson big props on what is a pretty awesome image that you can see on screen if you're watching on YouTube, and that is the team of the series, the combined team of the series. And I would announce 
pretty amazingly, there's zero All Blacks despite them being <laughs> in the world. So I, I think it's made up mostly of Wallabies and Frenchmen. So, Nelson, this is your image. Why don't you take us through some of the, the team and then I guess we can go through some of the contentious points as well because I know that there are a few that we didn't all completely agree on as well. Yeah, look, I think this was our combined sort of side with, with input from all of us here. In the front row, we had Slipper, who I think had an outstanding series with Tupo, the other prop. Massive impact from him, two games off the bench, and he was really good in his start as well. Brendan Payanga and Mosa, one of the contentious ones, he had a very good series for himself. He is not a very experienced hooker come international level, but you would not have told during this series. In the locks, this is an interesting one. We've got Darcy oh, Swan. Yeah, I was going to say, mate, right let's discuss, mate. Let's discuss. Oh, he's the first of all, he's the Let's, let's right. discuss. So I, I think we can all agree that Slipper and Tupo are probably the form two props across both sides. And it is funny that Tupo is the form tight head, even though he comes off the bench two out of three of the games and they were his better games. But it's, it's hard to argue with. Nelson. But that's going to be the biggest really... argument of the next 10 years, isn't it? It's going to be that's like, right. what, why can't, where do we start it? I don't know. Yeah, but you don't. I think what they've been doing is fantastic. But look, any, anyway, um, Kagi and I thought Brandon Panger most, and we convinced you to swap him out, swap him in. Sorry, you you went Gatan Balot. Is that yeah? Look, yeah, yeah. Look, I think Balot had a, a, a very good series. I think ball in hand, he was brilliant. He had seven offloads in the series, four tackle busts, a line break, a try assist himself, made thirty three from thirty six um, tackles, one an offload. Uh, want a turnover. I think he had a very, very solid series. So for mine, I thought his impact ball in hand is what separated him from Brendan Pangamosa. I think Brendan Pangamosa was maybe a little bit composed. Hold on, hold on. Don't tell us about what you like about Brendan Pangamosa. That's what Carl is here for. You're selling Carlo. mate, we talk about the best, best hookers in the world. And we always throw in the guys that make tackle busts, that throw off loads, that set up tries, and that is everything he did. Uh, Dane Coles, Asafa Amola, all the players we love. All right, we've been we've been giving Nelson some for uh, getting caught up in a bit of fantasy rather than uh, test match uh, footy. And um, your your primary role as a hooker, if you're looking at it uh, over the series, Harry Mm -hmm. and I think that Brandon Payengamosa he nailed the critical roles more because. The Wallabies' set pace was just better consistently throughout the series. Uh, Barlow had some awesome uh, runs. Certainly a lot better carry the ball than BPA was in this series. Um, and as Nelson alluded to some of the stats, but he, uh, look, it certainly wasn't as big in, in the scrums and also um, certainly let them lost them a few lineouts. And uh, particularly in that last game, I think there was, was it two calls not straight. He was really feeling the pressure after yeah. losing three of them. So, um uh, yeah, for, for mine, just BPA, the scrum was dominant. Uh, he, he made some good carries just in, in, in and around tight, um, but the line out was pretty good. So okay. I think I think the argument definitely can be made for both. Both very good hookers. We have a couple other contentious ones, and that was probably for people being not very good. So if we, uh, we move on into the second row, we have a clear Darcy Swain for me, that impact. You know, critical moments in two matches right in the dying moments. And he, he just had a series that seemed to come out of nowhere. He was in on a one locking position and we had Teo Fifanoa 
as the other lock, which is is what you boys were alluding to. That's who you thought was the best lock, but I, I thought this was a weak one all round, the, the second lock. I, I agree. Look, I, I don't think there was any standout locks. Swain, you know, obviously didn't play the most minutes. Uh, the third game, I thought he was exceptional. The other games, as you said, he had a few really big key moments despite not being on the park for too much. So I think we all agreed with that one. But Teo Fafanua, Kagi and I were big fans of him just based mainly on, on his impact in that second game. He wasn't quite as good when he started, similarly to Taniela Tupo, if you ask me as well. But that one game that he came off the bench, he was absolutely immense. Him, his physicality and dominance in both attack and defence was a big reason that they won that game. Don't get me wrong, Woki was their best player in that game, but Teo Fafanua was not that far behind him. I thought he was brilliant. And in a game where, in, in a spot where I guess the biggest competition was players just having a decent work rate, I thought the impact that he could make would have made him my next choice lock. Yep, yeah, I think that's perfectly enough said there. And and I have to say, how have we gotten this far into the pod without saying Cameron Walkie's name? My God. We're, uh, we're not up to him, mate. That's, well, that's how. Well, we are now, mate. The back rowers. Uh, okay. look, just to show how impartial and fair we are in the podcast, we have included Jalunch in there at number eight. because we've taken his captaincy off him, though. We have taken his captaincy yeah, off that's him. That's it. Boys, exactly. like, that. I'm, boys, I'm not going to lie. This That wasn't the first photo I used for him. <laughs> yeah. I, I um, have made one with him holding his face. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little disappointed now, actually, that you didn't have that in there. Yeah. But, uh, look, I think um, we were just saying before the pod, interesting, going into this series, I think we would have thought we definitely would have had at least two of the the three back rowers and the team of the series. Obviously, Hoops, I said in the preview to game one, Hoops was going to have uh, his opposite number, Jalanch for Jalanch. Uh, that was my my great joke there. But um, no, Jalanch played eight. Oh, both the second hilarious, and, yeah. <laughs> second yeah. and third test. He was massive, particularly in the first and second test. Um, some huge steals, big carries, really good player, but almost as good as Cameron Walkie unbelievably good in particularly game two and three. He was man of the match in game two um, and probably one of the best forwards still in, in game three. But um, we, uh, we never talked about that try he scored in game three where he just reached over and just oh. dumped the ball over the rack. Like he's just a menace. How can you do that? This is yeah. my goal. This is my gold glasses still on, but I, I actually thought that oh, um, one yeah. of the props was slow for letter was slow to roll away. and was kind of almost Holding our players back, which is why What's they that were still to do on with the anything, mate. It was phenomenal from Walkie. Who cares about? Okay, all right, no, sorry, I'll give it to Walkie. No, he was great. He's him and his long levers, awesome play. Yeah, let's let's yeah. get out of the uh, the back line, Nels. So if we jump across into the nine, look, this was a, this was a, a tricky one, but Coolio, he was very very good throughout this series. Tate was very pivotal when he had his moments, but Coolio started all three. And he was someone that really led that side around. Um, was he? His, sorry? I was going to say, he, over the series, was he almost the best back or are we, are we still going to give it to, uh, I'm jumping the gun here, but Jamine? Uh, Kuyo was really, he was really calm and composed. I think it's it's pretty close across the park. I, I think he was probably, he controlled the game better than anyone else, for sure, in the back line. Mm. He, was, yeah. he was the most composed kind of senior player there, even though he's not that senior. <clears throat> Yeah, that, that's it. He, he had a lot of composure. Maybe not as many flare moments. We saw a couple in that third match, definitely. And I suppose a, a few trickled throughout the rest. But yeah, look, he, his partner in the halves was none other than Noah Lolasio, who had just a brilliant 
a brilliant three test, building every single test to finish on a real peak. You know, I didn't have a brilliant three tests, but he had a, he had a brilliant last test for his for his experience level. I mean, brilliant series. A guy that was thrown in that would not have been a starter who has then built with confidence, built with control of, of that. The series, he wasn't perfect at every moment. No, I think he was pretty pretty average to begin with. But the series as a whole in terms of what he got out of it, what Australia will get out of it with, you know, a, a 10 that can put their hand up in those big moments, I thought he was brilliant yeah. and deserved this, this position here. When we look across into the centres, although he didn't play that third test, uh, Dante was the inside centre. He had an awesome series, a very, very exciting player. Mm. Um, and Paisami, who shifted into inside centre for that final test, but played in the outside centre for the, the first two. Did, did anyone, did either of you see anyone different in this? No, I think we all agreed pretty strongly on that. Dante, particularly for mine, in that first test, he was unbelievable um, and almost he's, as good in the second. Just an absolute pest. Yeah, his work over the ball, I think he must have actually had the most um, pilfers or forced turnovers in the series, I reckon, because he got at least two or three, I think, in each of those first two tests. And Harry, why don't you take us through the one thing I would say is a special mention to Iketal and Vincent as well. Vincent was awesome in all three games, and I think one of the more composed players as well, but it's a pretty stacked midfield at the moment, to be honest, in in these two teams. And Lenny Iketal in that last game, I thought he was fantastic as well and great off the bench in the second test. So, yeah, definitely a lot of competition for those positions. But if we push to the back three, we've obviously already named Jaminet. We thought he was phenomenal and really, really impressed us. Banks had some good moments, particularly in that second test, but definitely couldn't compete with Jaminet for that position. Before you um, touch on the wings, you, if, if you're watching it, you may not recognise this man on the right wing. He doesn't have a red headgear on. <laughs> Villiere is, uh, is, is I, I think, probably the more contentious wing position, to be honest, and that's with Corin Betti on the other wing who got red carded and missed the third match. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I don't know how that works, but look, Corin Betti was so damaging whenever he was on the park. So he had to have the left wing spot. And if you take away the fact, or if you look at the fact that that red card was apparently not meeting the red card threshold, it's hard to take that away from him. Filiere had a, a really good early part of his series. I think there probably wasn't that, an absolute standout winger in the yeah. other across the rest of the action nominees, but for a young for a young winger, I think he finished well. He took his opportunities, and particularly that big left foot step in the first test, I thought he was really good and showed some real promise and some real agility. Yeah, it. It, it, it was it was disappointing to. I mean, both of these wingers really only got 160 minutes, didn't they? They didn't, neither really took part in that third test. So Villieri couldn't stamp his name, you know, in there in that final matchup either. But throughout those first two. Um, matches. I think he played very well. He got two tries. He had four tackle busts, three line breaks. He made 11 from 11 tackles and he also won two turnovers. So although there was not any standouts, I think he was quite good in that second test and very good in that first. Definitely. And I think the impact of the series, yeah, for sure, those are our two men. Um, I don't think Tom Wright uh, had a particularly great series. Obviously, Dale Gunu didn't really get a chance to uh, to, to participate. And um, <laughs> I mean, I thought that uh, Teddy Tomas, you alluded to, one of my favourites, uh, was awesome in the yep. game, last game he played. Um, and Damien Penno was also very, very good, but just uh, certainly a little quiet, went a little bit missing in the last game. So had his best performance in the second match. But, um, yeah, just uh, I guess just didn't get many opportunities in game one and three. So 
Um, he, he he was a man we thought would go roving and really try to get involved throughout the game, and it's something that he certainly didn't do in, in that first and third test. That third test, he didn't make a single run. He made two tackles. So it's probably, he, he needs to go to the school of Marika Corriambetti. He's not willing to get <laughs> yeah, yeah. there and do the pick and drives. You know what I mean? If you want the ball, you got to go get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that brings right, us to us the, 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 the player of the series. And look, Nelson loves his uh, his cards, and this is one of your best, Nelson. I love this, M- Michael Hooper, who I think we all have our chance. We've all had our moments where we've talked him down and said he probably wasn't all he was hyped up to be, but he has been absolutely phenomenal in this series. A, an attack in defence. I think his leadership, although no one's going to agree with everything he does, I think was very very good as well. He's had a fantastic impact on this team. He looks refreshed. He's attacking a hell of a lot more than what we've seen in a few years. And it's just been fantastic to watch him go from strength to strength. The absolute standout across both teams as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, look, I, I think for me, he was he was the clear the clear person to, to take out this spot. I still have a couple of question marks over some leadership decisions. Five metres out in centre field, kicking to take the, the line out rather than going for a scrum. Some of those things. But I think that third test, he actually stood up as a leader and discussed a lot with the ref and, and defended his players really, really well. Um, and I think hopefully that gives him a bit more confidence in terms of that portion of his game. But boy, oh boy, there was there was no one that had a bigger impact across these three tests. Sure. I think we've always known that he's led by act by actions um, and he's, he's obviously grown and grown as a, a captain on the field. But I think uh, absence, you know, can make the heart grow fonder. But I think in our, in the instance for us this year, uh, even as New South Welshman, with him as our Waratahs captain, him just off for one season, just made the the new young studs, uh, Fraser McWright. We've been uh, all up in Fraser McWright this year. Uh, and yet we haven't seen him feature this series. But no, Hoops, the heart and soul, definitely the MVP of this series and um, and the most important player in the Wallabies, I'd say, right now, for sure. Yeah, look, I'd say for sure. I think it's it's. I mean, we we talked about him a, a bit, but the French man of the series, Harry. Do you want to tell us who that was? Uh, I would love to. Is it Wocky? It is. It is Wocky, <laughs> mate. Got him. I'm just um, assuming. Yeah, look, Wocky was exceptional. We've talked about him already a little bit, but uh, for for a man that none of us has ever heard of, and. Uh, and really got his first big run in the second test. God, he was good in that second and third test. He's he's a freak. That's you know, they they talked about the fact that the the purpose of the test or the goal for this test was to unearth some talent. Well, I mean, when you're picking up players like Walkie and exposing them to this level of competition, and he can thrive like he did, it's it's pretty special. Add yeah. that to Jaminet, Dante, yeah. Bumba. Like there is just so much talent in that French side, and they're going to be an absolute tough team to, to go up against in the uh, next World Cup. I think the I think Wokey could be the find of this series. He was absolutely outstanding. You you boys know Alex Tar, friend of the pod at Alex the Tar on Twitter. He came out and said Cameron Wokey is a rich man's Mario Toje. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> He is no, absolutely unbelievable. I think you're right, Harry. Look, they, they came out here to unearth talent and they absolutely ticked that off. And, and at the same time, they, you know, they came out and experimented. They also bagged themselves a win in Australia for the first time since 1990. So uh, if you're Gaultier, uh, you know, you've, you've come home. This is a successful tour. So 
Yeah. Um, very good. And it's, it's scary just thinking about how good Cameron Walker is. And, uh, I mean, if you do look at the list, uh, a lot has been made over the list of the, the starting players that have been left back home. He's not even going to get a look in on the bench at the moment, Cameron Walker. And he, he's got himself another year uh, and a half, I guess, to really make a push for that 2023 World Cup. And obviously, yes, he is an exciting youngster, but... God, they have a wealth of talented back rowers. I mean, Charles Olivon, the captain, uh, Gregory Aldrit, one of the informed number eights in the world. And then, of course, we've got Jalanch, if they still let him play. They shouldn't, but <laughs> they do. And uh, and Croton as well. I mean, yeah, it's... There's, they've got some real real depth in the back row for sure. Hmm. Look, there's one thing I wanted to touch on, and it, it's really to round out a lot of what we've talked about with this series. And it's it's the uh, the well known man Alan Jones. He he came out and said Rennie isn't a good coach, and he claimed that Rennie should not be coaching the Wallabies. And whoever picked him did not do their due diligence. And he ended his. This is something he released midweek. He ended his article with Dave Rennie. You are going to have to rev up the Wallabies for Game Three. Your one real concern is do they believe you? The answer, boys. Uh, well, they just played 76 minutes with 14 men. So I'd say they do. I'd yes. say they wholeheartedly believe in. Clearly. So I think if there's one thing to come out of that article, it's that Alan Jones should be dropped from whatever he does. And so we don't have to hear him ever again. Yeah, but we go through that on a yearly basis, drop Alan Jones. You know what I mean? It's like a... But, um, yeah. Look, let's, let's push on to the, uh, the listener questions, guys, to wrap this thing up because I know that people are getting sick of hearing us uh, oh, can I just actually, I did just want to make one more point before we do, which was on, we've talked a lot about Noah Lilliseo and his growth. Um, and it is a lot of people have, you know, as Nelson was saying, had a brilliant series. I think he really had a brilliant game three and learnt a lot in the first two games. But, uh, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about the second game. And I don't like to pull it back with some negativity here. But as I said last week, or the last pod rather, that was probably the most rudderless uh, I've ever seen a Wallabies backline in recent memory. And so, um, you know, a lot of people now have been talking about how, who do you pick Noah Lucio or James O'Connor and, and whatnot, and what I would have given for James O'Connor in that second test match, you know, for mine, very simply, we wouldn't have lost that second test match if we'd had James O'Connor playing. So um, just to be fair and balanced, I think, look, it's certainly an interesting choice, but going into the Bledisloe series, I mean, I'm starting James O'Connor. Are you guys on the same page with that? It sounds like he might not be fit, to be honest, but if I had the choice, I think I would pick him as well, yeah. Yeah. But look, I, I highly agree that I think we would have won that second test and wouldn't have come down to that third test. But yeah. I think Lolisio did himself wonders for, for getting more and more game time. And, and I was someone that was a little nervous to see him get that second and then the third start. But he really, really stood up and, and evolved throughout that series. I think it was the absolute silver lining, wasn't it? It was the, uh, you know, we're so lucky for the circumstances for him to have that growth. So it's awesome for, for Australian rugby. Yeah. But sorry, Harry, oh, to the question, one. Question. question one from Rev at Rugby Fixation in the uh, Rugby Fixation podcast. Another shout out to him. He's, uh, he's everywhere and I thoroughly enjoy his podcasts. He says, who is your three, two, and one for the biggest impact on the series for the Wallabies? Now, I think we've all said that Hooper is our three. So we'll leave that there unless anyone has any really strong feelings about that one. Let's go Kagi first. Who's your two and who's your one? As in one is the most impactful on the series? Three is no. the most, given that we've given it to Hooper. 
So two and one. Two is the second most impactful. One point for the third most. Okay, two for mine is very simple. Taniela Tupo doesn't even. I'd almost consider him. Well, I guess we have to give it to Huber, don't we? We gave Huber MVP. No. <laughs> um, but no, t- yeah, Tupo was just unbelievable. I mean, uh, yeah, as we talked about the difficulty of, I think you got to play him off the bench because of the impact player he is, but just those scrums. I mean, these are two phenomenal scrummaging uh, forward packs, even though it was a young French team. And Tupo just dominated his core roles. It was unbelievable. So that's for mine. Uh, and one, do you want me to pick one as well? Is that where you yeah, all pick Yeah, it? yeah. Uh, and, and one... Probably going to give it to, I don't know, I guess I have to give it to Noel Lucia, just nailing all those kicks, you know what I mean? That's, again, it could have really easily gone another way as it had in the past that we're kicking around 50%, 60%, and uh, we see another game. We, just, we see another two games lost. We only won the first and third test by a penalty goal. Uh, it's easy to forget that. So, you know, in the years gone, the later part of Bernard Foley's career, it felt like we were kicking it around 60%, you know? So um, uh, to get up yeah. there 95% for Noah, for mine, that's, yeah, for sure. I think, honestly, we might struggle to do something too different here. I think Taniela Tupo off the bench has proved that he is world-class. He's a world-class impact player. I think we're just so blessed when it comes to tight heads that we can have the debate whether he needs to start or not because he is amazing coming off the bench. And Alan Alatoa is amazing to start that match as well. So I think for me, Tupo does get too very hard to not go Lolicio. I think for the sake of doing something different, even though it's not really what I believe, I'm going to say Swain having two hugely impactful moments right at the ends of games that were very pivotal for us to win our two games. As I said, Lolisio, brilliant, had a lot more moments on the field as well. But I think uh, Swain, his first one, he wasn't on very long in his debut when he, he made that impact and had some big moments before that. First touch was a charge down. So I think he had some really, really good impact but was on the field for not as long. Yeah, uh, look, I'll, I'll go uh, Taniela with you guys for number two. I'm going to go to my my number one, though, maybe a little bit controversial. Uh, I'm going to say Marika Cotambetti. Oh, yeah. um, I, I thought, look, Lolesio, L- 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 I can see why you would say that because he was clearly the most influential in that third game. But I actually don't think, with the exception of his very good goal kicking, he had that much of a positive influence on the team in Test 1 and 2. Uh, I'd say Cotambetti's red card in Test 3 really galvanised the squad. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> <laughs> but that's not why I picked him. I, I thought the, is that the what Swinton's been trying to do all along? Is that it? That's right. That, that, that was planned. Uh, with the attacking impetus that he gave the side in games one and two with how much he hunted for the ball, how effective he was getting us over the game line, I thought that pretty much everything good came through him in the first couple of tests. So I, I thought he was exceptional. You know, he was the Wallabies' best player last year. And I think he was well on his way to being the best again in this three-test series if he wasn't just robbed from it. That takes us on to the second question. This is one from M underscore Hill 917 on Twitter. He said, who is your 10 to 13 for Bledisloe 1? Kagi, you can't pick Taniela Tupo. So uh, let's go to Nelson first for this one. Look, this is this is a tough one. I, I think we've we've touched on it. If James O'Connor is fit, I think I'd be starting James O'Connor in that ten jersey. Uh, I'd love to see Tate McDermott get that start at number nine as well. Even though I know we're not discussing him, 
But to surround, you know, James O'Connor with his similar Reds players as well, have a lot of that cohesion. So for that, I'm thinking Faisami is the man I'd love to see in that 12 jersey. You've got Reds, 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 basically. And we throw an eight, we've got Harry Wilson there. So you just got to stack a Reds through those pivotal players and pivotal key positions. When it comes down to the outside centre role, this this is where it gets tough for me. I, I think if Paisami is playing 12, it, it is very difficult, which means, you know, it, it puts Tamora's name on, on the, the potential list. But I'd love to see Paisami playing 12, and I'd love to see either I've got Lolasia written down there, which is clearly wrong, Ikatao get another run who I think was quite impactful. And maybe we get to see the likes of Parisi on the bench because he can cover wing and he can cover centres as well. So for me, I'm going to say James O'Connor, Hunter Paisami and Ikatao. Yep, yeah, huge. Um, sorry, I realise now that I jumped the gun with that listener question. I thought yeah. uh, <laughs> I was just worried that uh, we weren't going to talk about JOC and Lolaseo. Um, well, I'll give you my thoughts on that. I'll be starting JOC for sure. The difficult question for mine now is I've talked a lot previously about how I don't feel the need to definitely start Tamua and JOC. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a problem with having Tamua on the bench as the backup 10 uh, and providing a 12 coverage. Uh, so I I kind of feel, um, but I guess, it, I guess it depends what we want from this All Black series. What like you want? I would probably, okay, I would have JOC at tw- uh, 10, I would have Hunter Paisami at 12. I actually think he's earned the right to, to have that crack. I'm going to put Tamua on the bench uh, for, for the bench 10, which is, yeah, sorry, that means yeah. Lolasio misses out. Uh, and then at 13, uh, it's a tough one. Um, for mine, it's actually between Ikitao or Parise. Uh, and I say that because you know how much I love Jordi Bataille, but... I actually would be starting Jordi Bataille on the right wing. So that's that's why. Um, I know I have often talked about why I think he's he is the 13 for Australia. And, and you guys have said, no, look, put him on the wing so he um, doesn't have to make as many decisions and can grow into it. But uh, sorry, Nels, you, you want to jump in? Mate, I, I just want to say you took an awfully long time to say I agree with Nelson. <laughs> Did I? Yeah, you said the exact same as me, mate, which I love because, I mean, it means you're right for once. Because I was thinking, I had to think through it uh, for a long let's, time. Let's push on, considering yeah. Kagi's offering nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> and guys, I'm going to rush through because I'm not going to offer anything new as well. I, I think the same. I think continuity is big. Dave Rennie's made that clear. I'm going to give Jock a run. That's the only difference because I do think that he deserves his spot. Paisami, Itchy Towel to finish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're my 12 and 13. Oh, well, although, can I, I will say, I, I don't have a problem. I wouldn't have a problem giving Parisi a go. Just because, I think off the bench. I think off the bench. Just because of how good he was against the Kiwis. He, he probably was one of the best players in, in the Australian conference against the Kiwis. In I, I agree. I, I agree. I think we're all thinking the same thing. And that is like, we, we want to see him. But at the same time, I like the idea of building combination, sticking with what works, give these guys a chance to get comfortable. And yeah. the best way to do that is to probably let them run out again. And yep. I think that centre combo has got a lot of potential as well. So, so do I. Obviously, on the bench, I agree. And you could just put so it I, I want Tamua and Hodge on my bench, actually, to be fair. Uh, I just want those experienced heads on the bench. Yep. Okay. That's fine, mate. Yep. Um, look, I, I think the, the last thing that I want to touch on was Suncorp, boys. It's, it's the fortress. It's come through with the goods. 
twice this year. If you'd been in Queensland and a Queensland and Australian fan over this last handful of years, you've won a Reds Super Rugby AU title. We've beaten the All Blacks last year in the fourth test there. We've won this one in the dying moments from both two tests against France there. As New South Welshman, no matter how much it hurts to say it, I wouldn't even care. I know you boys are on the same page. We would not care to see more games, more of those big games played in Suncorp. We're just happy to have a fortress. It's something that I think Australia has missed. And it caught me by surprise when, when the stats started to come out, how good we have been there in recent years. That's it. It's nice to have our own Eden Park, isn't it? You know what I mean? Just to have one place that has that mantra about it when you come in there as an opposition. And, um, and, and it really it gets the boys up, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, guys. Can I? My my parting thought was that the Kiwis always have to be better than us, always. And I watched that uh, New Zealand versus Fiji game, and I thought Damon Murphy has ruined this game. He's been so terrible. And then the Kiwis just go, "We can do one better." O'Keefe slides into the Wallabies versus France game, and within five minutes, the Kiwis have won up to us again. Uh, <laughs> Kiwis won, Aussies nil, going into Bledisloe one. It's not looking good, but God, it's been good to get a series win. It is. I was going to say, if we don't do another pod beforehand, the next one will probably be previewing uh, Bledisloe one just after we get some team lineups. So um, how good is that going to be? I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, playing New Zealand is a whole other kettle of fish to playing, well, anyone else really. So um, We'll have to keep this in suspense there, boys. That's it. But we'll we'll build build the hype. All right. All right, boys. That's that's it for us. And that's the end of the Viva La Renaissance tour. Thanks for listening. And hooroo.